And I was really aware that I'm raising my two young kids um, with a family history of, of mental illness. And I wanted to know whether there was something that I could do to teach them to protect their minds. Um, you know, after all, our minds is the one filter through which we experience the world. Hello, welcome back to How To Be Happy, a podcast where we explore all the ways that we can live a happier life. Each week, we're talking to happiness experts, celebrities, ordinary people to see if they have the secret to getting more joy out of life. This week, we're looking at mindfulness. Is it the magic cure so many make it out to be, or is it just a useful tool to keep among our other coping strategies? We'll be joined in the show by Shannon Harvey, author of My Year of Living Mindfully. But first, Nina Young and I are going to talk mindfulness. Hello, Kate. How are you? Mm, that's very mindful, <laughs> purposeful, and mindful. How are you? I'm good. I've done my I've done my mindfulness check in today. Have you done yours? Uh, I actually haven't. I did some meditation last night, though. I did it straight after work, and I went upstairs and just knocked it out because I think sometimes mindfulness or meditation more is is a bit of a chore mm. in the sense that you probably feel like doing anything else but getting up there getting it done is a bit like going for a jog isn't it yeah I don't do um meditation when you do meditation are you kind of sitting quietly is that what you're doing well look I've tried all sorts I'm I'm fooling around with it a little bit at the moment I did last night just had my headphones on but no music no guided meditation I think I'm probably don't haven't found a guided meditation that I'm just really loving at the moment Mm. that person talking all the time can be distracting strangely um but yes sitting and just trying to focus on my breath which is um you know hard and that's what shannon i think that's what her book talks a little bit about so when you say mindfulness what do you mean so for me it's just about um being purposeful and aware of uh, my body or my thoughts or what's happening in the moment being present in the moment is what i'm working on I definitely have trouble with the quiet part of it. So um, I've heard many times that you should really do like five minutes of quiet in the morning. But of course, I'm, I'm, I'm on my phone. So many rules for like, life, aren't there? Make sure you've done your, eaten your oats for yeah. breakfast and you've had your mindfulness five minutes and have you done your three things you're grateful but if, for? Yeah, if I can do that, that check-in. So when you wake up in the morning, just sort of being aware of how you're feeling within your body, being aware of how you're feeling emotionally and not trying to solve any of those problems in that moment, mm-hmm. just being aware of them and sort of adjusting your day around that a little bit if you can? Well, I think that's the thing. We live in our heads Mm. so much. And that's something, you know, I try to talk to my teenage girls about. Like sometimes I go, that's just your head. That's not real. That's just your head talking. And But as humans, we live in that state so much. We live in that chatter and that talk. And and, and unless you bring yourself back to that moment of, as you say, mindfulness or consciousness, Mm. um, you can sort of, the whole day can go by and you're, you're, you're not actually living in the moment. Yeah. And anxiety um, became a thing for me, like only within the last 12 months. This has not really been like an ongoing thing for me. So I think it was a real pandemic response. But Mm. I mean, you're working in a newsroom as well. Mm. 
sort of around that March period when there were just this scrolling horrible news mm. and it was like stock markets are crashing mm. and this looming threat of death oh, and like die. yeah it was too much um, and actually that, that's when I had my first sort of physical panic attack that I've ever had mm. and that made me realize that I need to do something I need to be more active in looking after my mental health during that that sort of pandemic time mm. and not just sort of passively allow things to happen and, you know, collapse, which was what was going to happen if I just kept pushing through. Yeah. And look, it, it's interesting, like, you know, as we'll hear from from Shannon about mindfulness and its place, I think that um, I certainly find that it's a, it's, a, it's a great tool. It's like any of these things. It's not the answer. It's not the one answer, but it certainly is a great tool. And... You know, the the funny thing is when you can be really um, mindful and, and present, you know, there's there's a great peace in that when you're able to sort of just cut all that noise out. Have you read um, Eckhart Tolle at all? No, but it's definitely, oh um, it's like, it's definitely like on my list. It's literally the one. <laughs> I reckon it's the one book. I, have, I actually have listened to him on um, Oprah's podcast. Which is, really, yeah. which is really good. So A, a New Earth is, um, I think, probably The Power of Now he wrote first, but I think that A New Earth is probably he wrote second and is actually the better book. It's like he sort of gathered himself and, 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 and talked about, you know, the important the importance of being present, but um, you have to. You have to get through the first chapters a bit kind of like, you know, as a world, as a global, we have to We have to come to – it's a bit sort of – it's a bit big, um, but then he just dives into it and it's, it's, it's so good, so good. You have to read it. Okay. It's, it's I need right to make it at the top an, of the list. I have to make it an audio book though because I like to listen on the train while doing 10 ah, other things. Okay, good. <laughs> well, Eckhart's not going to like that. Although he's too present. He'd be yeah, too present he to worry. Yeah. He, wouldn't, he wouldn't be judging you. Journalist Shannon Harvey was feeling overwhelmed. She was suffering from an incurable autoimmune disease. She had insomnia. She wanted to find a way to exercise regularly for her mental health, but she couldn't find the kind of programs she was looking for. She also wanted to make sure that she was helping her kids to find the best way of living in this complicated world. So Shannon recruited a team of scientists and she put mindfulness and meditation to the test. She filmed a self-experiment for a documentary and the result was a year of living mindfully. And we're here today with Shannon Harvey and she's the author of My Year of Living Mindfully. And when did the book come out, Shannon? Ooh, uh, just about a month ago now. Okay, so on the shelves right now and it's a self-experiment that becomes a life-changing experience. How would you describe the book? It's a self-experiment, obviously, um, but the self-experiment really provides the, um, I guess you'd say, storytelling device with which to do a deep dive into looking at what are things that we can all be doing for ourselves to protect and nurture and nourish our minds. And it's sort of like it is like, you know, when we think about living mindfully, it is a kind of a, there's a picture on the front of you and you're sitting in, you know, lotus position about to meditate. It is a bit of a sort of, you know, spiritual term, isn't it really? I guess meditation's an ancient practice. And yet you come at it from a really sort of science 
based, um, you know, angle, being a, a journalist who's worked in the science field for many years. Yeah, it was really important to me uh, to wrap it in a scientific um I guess you'd, you'd call it, well, view it through a scientific lens. And that's because um, I'm an, a health journalist and I really value evidence. I use evidence as kind of like um, my tour guide as I try to navigate the wellness industry. And so when I went in search of something that didn't require needing to see an expensive therapist or having to take medication, something that I could do for myself, for my own mental well-being. Uh, I ended up landing on mindfulness because it was really the only thing mm-hmm. that had um, an, an ever-growing body of evidence, um, although it's still fledgling in, in, com- in comparison with other things. Um, but it was something that anybody could do, regardless of their income, regardless of their education, regardless of their culture or faith. Um, it's really just simply a form of mind training. And it really is an ancient practice. It's one of those things where I I know you did spend a lot of time talking about the evidence behind um, mindfulness or meditation or what it could had proven to be able to do. But it's one of those things that anecdotally, there's not a lot of bad rap going on about being mindful, is it? People don't tend to tear it down too much. Most people seem to think that it has benefits. Yes, that's true. Um, Although I have to put a little caveat in there, which is that there is a sort of a a trend now and, and an important element to this because people are now increasingly coming at mindfulness for the mental health um, problem, you could say. Often people think that it is going to be a panacea, mm. that it's going to make all their problems go away. Mm. There's a lot of misconceptions about mindfulness training, that it's about relaxation or trying to, um, you know, think happy thoughts or visualise your ideal life or whatever. And it's none of those things. And I think some people can end up feeling frustrated or disappointed. And there are there is some small, small um, evidence now emerging that for some people it can be harmful. Mm. Well, give us a bit of a personal perspective. You say and you write about in the book that you, you suffer from a, a chronic illness. It's a, an autoimmune condition. But did you also seek out, you said you were looking for something. Was it because, you know, just to deal with those emotional ups and downs, those upheavals? Why were you searching for something like this? Okay, so there is multiple reasons. Um I have a family history of mental illness. Um, Throughout my childhood, I witnessed the devastating effects of things like depression, bipolar, um, somebody in my family committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And I was really aware that I'm raising my two young kids um, with a family history of of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know whether there was something that I could do to teach them to protect their minds. Um, you know, after all, our minds is the one filter through which we experience the world. So I wondered whether there was a sort of a form of mental training, you know, in the same way that we're advised to eat our five fruit and vegetables a day or, you know, work out for a minimum of 30 minutes a day in order to keep fit and healthy. I wanted that kind of mental fitness training. Um, And I wasn't doing so well myself at that time. My chronic illness, um, which causes arthritis throughout my body, um, was flaring up periodically and I was feeling quite despondent about the the levels of pain that came with that. 
I was a, a mother with two young kids trying to work full time, mm. doing the work life <laughs> two step. And I was, although I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was in the midst of a full blown mental health crisis, like a post-traumatic stress flare or, you know, an episode of depression or anything like that. When I, when I did a scale of where I rated myself on a wellbeing scale, I put myself as just below average. Mm. And I think this is one of the points is that why is it mm. that we have to wait until we're quote unquote sick mm. before we do something for our mental health? And yeah. one of the experts who I met throughout the project, uh, Willem Kuyken from the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, highlighted to me that it's just absurd that we wait until we're at the equivalent of stage four cancer mm. before we intervene with mental health. Well, we're so, as you said, we're so smart these days about preventative health, about we know that we need to exercise. You don't wait until you'll, you know, weigh 150 kilos before you say, <laughs> oh, okay, I should. The idea is that we incorporate it into our daily lives, as you say, same with food. But it seems to me that mindfulness or meditation is much the same as exercising, getting to the gym and eating a good diet in that it's not as easy as everyone thinks. Oh, that is so true. And one of the really revealing things to me about this is that I, you know, I had written a lot about mindfulness as a health journalist before I embarked on this self-experiment. So I thought I kind of knew what I was talking about. And I, I in some, when I look back at some of my early reporting on this, I would... I would say things like we need to relax and practice mindfulness training. Mm. And this idea that mindfulness training is relaxing, I understand why we all think that or that it should be relaxing. And when you look at the history of how it became popular in the West, two of the kind of pioneers, a man named Herbert Benson from Harvard University, mm. who snuck transcendental meditators through the doors of his lab in Harvard, um, and he developed something called the relaxation response and wrote a best-selling book called The Relaxation Revolution. And then another man named John Kabat-Zinn who um, developed a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And you sort of find the DNA of that program within, you know, the DNA of of, of, of hospitals, of mm. even parliaments, mm. schools. And so those his program was called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Mm. And Herbert Benson's program was called the relaxation response and so given that they really pioneered mindfulness or meditation training in the west I see why yeah. we all think it's about it relaxation. It almost feels like they had to give it, give it those titles back then because people didn't really understand, couldn't conceptualise what meditation was really about. And it, maybe just saying it's it's for stress release because, you know, stress became the big thing, what, in the 70s and 80s, didn't it? We all talked about how stressed we were for the first exactly, time. Exactly, exactly. And when you look at it as well, they were coming straight off the heels of a man named Hans Selye, who is considered the father of discovering stress. And he what was really interesting in my research is learning that a, a, a significant amount of his research was funded by big tobacco. Wow. <laughs> and so you think like, you know, they're, they're funding this research about the need to relax. Yeah. Oh, how do we relax? We have a cigarette. <laughs> Don't do that. Not advocating that. So let's talk a little bit about the experiment because I know you went in there and you did some medical examinations to check your stress levels and, and certain types of levels and the hope was at the end there might be a result, your case study of, of one, but I loved reading about your day one, day 21, still meditating um, because it was a difficult journey and the, f the most difficult part was just doing it 
every day. So can you talk to me a little bit about that, about setting that pattern and how you set up a pattern? Because people think, oh, well, I'll just sit down, I'll meditate. Very hard to do every single day. I guarantee you that if not for the fact that I had an army of scientists who were tracking everything from my stress hormones to my immune function, my cellular aging, my gene expression, if not for those scientists kind of holding me to account, I would not have stuck with it. And I think this is a really important thing that we need to talk about as we kind of look for solutions for our mental health and mental training is we need to talk about how hard it is to do it and stick with it, especially in a world that seems almost set up to make us fail. Mm. Um, but you I can did talk it though, about but I you can, did yeah, it. And I can talk you did about it, which I thought was amazing because I do know it can be really hard to commit to a <laughs> new challenge. And I was reading something about um, setting new challenges or setting new goals and it said like if you want to drink a glass of water every morning just really aim low like start by just getting the glass out that's all you need to do and just set that pattern or if you can't even do that maybe just open the cupboard door like there's all sorts of tactics but you obviously found yours can I ask you about the practice of meditation because I think people think as you said that it's about relaxation um, and then they find that they're tormented by all these thoughts. It's not relaxing. The mind is just going crazy. It's thinking about shopping lists or all the terrible things that it's failed to do in its life or all of the sort of things. It's the monkey mind, right? So did you feel that over time you managed to tame the monkey mind or is it still (laughs) leaping around? I, I think I would say that I've developed a different relationship with it. So the best way that I I find it really helpful to look at it through a scientific lens and I learned about this thing that we all have and that we're born with called the default mode network and it really changed my perception of what's happening inside my crazy, busy, hectic head. (laughs) Um, So the default mode is this thing that that was discovered um, by accident when People were in MRIs during experiments and the researchers said, okay, we're not doing the experiment anymore, just relax for a minute. And what they noticed is that the same network was lighting up in everybody when they weren't doing anything. Mm -hmm. And this default mode network is, it comes online, the way I think of it is it's kind of like our social network. Mm -hmm. And just like Mark Zuckerberg's social media network, Mm -hmm. it is notorious for taking us off track, for Mm -hmm. mind-wandering. Now, that can be really helpful. Um, Mind-wandering serves a really useful purpose, and I know you're a creative person, so you probably are like me and have some of your best ideas when you're not thinking about anything yes, in particular. True, true. So I'm not saying that the default mode is a bad thing to have, but Mother Nature designed it for us to think about things that are really important for ourselves. Mm. And it's kind of like the me network, the me, myself and I. And mm. often, you know, your work might be, for example, the thing that you're thinking about, but that's that's in relation to yourself. Mm. Or your kids might be something that you're thinking about and that's in relation to your family. Mm. So it's a fantastic thing for kind of the, the survival of the species if we're kind of programmed to default to thinking about our social network. But sometimes that can go a little bit haywire and my social network um, can kick into rumination. And I, to think tr- that, I think you, <laughs> you're not Robinson Crusoe there. I feel like that's probably everyone in the human race has that. And that's a r- racing thoughts or just, you know, just 
the challenging thoughts, that sort of mental, when you're having a, a, a discussion with a co-worker, oh, I would say that, and you're in the shower. Like, you're not even <laughs> ever going to have that discussion. <laughs> exactly, and it's totally natural. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what, for me, my mindfulness training has taught me to do is to recognise when it's been activated and to intentionally switch to a different kind of mode, to mm-hmm. a different kind of brain network, so to speak. Do you think that it matters what kind, and I know you, you know, if, if you read the book, you know, which is great, you give lots of different examples and resources around, you know, how to find a, a mindfulness teacher. But for you, do you think that there's a, a one way, like is it is it breath? Is it a, a mantra? Is it like what worked best for you in terms of the thing that you focused on to keep bringing your attention back to that point? Yeah, um, I, I mean, just to say, one of my big conclusions um, at the end of the project is that it's going to be different for every single individual person in the, in the same way that, um, you know, everybody likes, well, not everybody likes to, but everybody needs to exercise regularly. And some people might enjoy playing netball, whereas other people might enjoy playing golf or swimming. So there's totally different forms of meditation. Mindfulness in particular is a type of meditation that involves choosing an object of your awareness. So for example, you might choose the feeling of your breath on your nostrils, the sensation of your stomach rising and falling, um, the sounds of the birds tweeting outside. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to sort of throw your attention at that thing. And then every time you notice that your default mode has been activated, Mm -hmm. to bring your attention back. And um, one of the neuroscientists who's featured in this project is a woman named Dameshi Jha from the University of Miami, and she talks about it as a form of mental muscle training. Mm. It's that intentionally resting your attention back to a point of focus where the real training happens. And the value of that in real life is that a lot of these racing thoughts are not even real, right? We cause so much of our suffering by like the creation of worries that build on worries, even if you're not into really catastrophic thinking we're all guilty of that aren't we that that, and those are the things that they'll say I think I can't remember who the famous author who said you know some so many terrible things have happened in my life you know or some of them actually happened do you know what I mean (laughs) Mark Twain or something I've misquoted that I know but but I guess is that the sort of idea is that you're able to in your then everyday life start bringing your mind back from those racing thoughts that aren't serving you a purpose except maybe to make you feel bad about your life or yourself and bring it back to where you are, the present, where there's maybe nothing wrong at all. The way I like to say it is in the same way that we teach our kids not to believe everything they hear, mm-hmm. mindfulness training teaches you not to believe everything you think and feel. Oh, our lying minds. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things you also talk about is the fact that in mindfulness, one of the things is paying attention. It's not about deleting thoughts, is it? It's not about saying this is a bad thought, I shouldn't think this, or this is a great thought, I'll keep thinking this. It's about letting thoughts come up and pass without the judgment that we tend to put on them. In so many ways, I wish that mindfulness wasn't called mindfulness. Mm. I wish that it was called awareing. Oh, well, maybe we'll, <laughs> maybe you could start that start program of yeah. awareing. Yeah, because I think it's, it is really awareing training. It's the, the practice of being, being aware. Um, and so, so, so much of the time we're running around like headless chickens being unaware. Yeah. And so let's let's take it to a bit of a more of a spiritual plane because when people talk about um, 
meditation or mindfulness, they'll often talk about that consciousness versus the ego. And maybe if we were to use those two terms, we might say awareness as being consciousness and the ego being the, the rampant mind. But do you think that that is, people talk about when you're in that awareness place, I think you refer to it as being like a, a center in some ways, that 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 focus point. Do, do you think there's a spiritual element to it? So one of the elements of the whole project for me was to build up my training until I was ready for the mindfulness equivalent of a marathon, which involved a 10-day silent retreat. So just to be really clear for your listeners, it's not that I kind of, you know, used an app for 20 minutes a day and then signed up to a silent retreat. I meticulously trained until I was ready for this 10-day experience. And it really was one of the best things I've ever done in my mm. life. Um, I've done a Vipassana, and I know you didn't do a, <laughs> one of the – It was I know it was the Vipassana method, but it, it was. wasn't the Vipassana retreats, right? Yeah. yeah. I've done a Vipassana um, retreat, and I would have to agree that it's probably one of the best things I ever did in my life. I was not trained. I was not, yeah. I was not marathon wow. fit. When How I did that did, go? Oh, it was um, – it was – probably one of the hardest things I'd ever done and it was really hard to explain in fact a friend did it before me and I said hard is it like like hard like carrying a backpack up a hill and she said no it's worse like it's just the the mental torture almost of having to sit with yourself for so many hours in silence and to try to bring your mind back to this one thing which as you said is breath on the top of your um lip is um it teaches you a lot of things yeah. uh, about yourself, and um, I thought it was amazing. It was incredible, and I've I've never lost some of the things I learned from that. I certainly haven't kept up the practice, but um, but during that experience, you describe a, a bit of a, a transcendental kind of experience, don't you? Which I think is what a lot of people are hoping to get every time they sit down and meditate. <laughs> Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean. I, for me now in my daily practice, deep insight like that rarely occurs. In fact, I, I'm, you know, I'm still training. I've been meditating now for more than a thousand days, and um, I still feel like a beginner. Yeah, I'm still, you know, the the focus element of it is still a, a real challenge. But during the retreat, this kind of awareness of the nature of things, it was like all that inner chatter, that me thinking, that planning for the future, that ruminating on the past you know I call it pasting and futuring and worrying and all of that it just fell away it was like the def my default mode network I had trained so that it wasn't kicking in as often and what was left there was pure awareness and I feel like it was something that I was looking for my whole life it was a sense of deep inner peace about I suppose, the nature of things. People do describe it as being quite magical, as being a sort of sense of like this is actual reality as opposed to the reality that we've created, you know, with our, with our thoughts. Do you think – I've also heard, and I think you, you talk about it, you talk about from me to we, the funny thing about meditation or mindfulness is that we're going inward into ourselves and yet people, when they reach that sort of deep state, describe that – it's actually quite unifying that the opposite happens. They actually spread outward and uh, no longer feel there's boundaries between themselves and other people. Is that sort of something you could relate to? Oh, 100%. You've just said it far better than I can. Um, 
this there was this real realization i think it was almost like once my own oxygen mask had been fitted i then had this greater capacity to see a broader world and sort of turn my mind to to the others and you know it's interesting one of the things about mindfulness training that I really struggled with in the early days is thinking that it was a selfish thing to do. Mm. You know, how, you know, I'm a busy person. Taking time out for myself. That's right. Me time is so selfish. And what I realised towards the end, especially after the retreat experience, is that it's actually the biggest gift that I can do for the world. Mm. Now, you also, during this period that you were writing the book, you made a documentary, right? Yeah, that's right. I haven't seen it. I'd I'd love to. How can people... How can people see the doco? Uh, well, I will get you a special copy. Okay. All <laughs> right, that'd be great. Especially the retreat sequence you'll really appreciate. Um, but, yeah, it's available for download um, at, at the usual places like iTunes and Amazon, etc. But the, probably the best way you can do it, um, and if you're interested in supporting independent health journalism, yes. is to go to my website, which is shannonharvey.com. Okay, please do that. Let's support independent <laughs> independent health journalism. So, um, I did just want to also ask at the end of this, as a as you know, as you said, like going into it with a rigorous kind of you know journalistic um, intent. You talked about in the beginning that sort of McMindfulness, the sort of commodification of mindfulness, and I think you refer to at one point, you know dog combs and you know mindfulness dog combs yeah the pet tear strainer for dogs (laughs) (laughs) the mindful products pet tear strainer and and the space saving wine battle the mindful uh space saving wine bottle rack so clearly it's a it's a term that's been you know that's been snatched up by business as i guess healthy and all of those sort of terms did you know years ago and probably vegan or plant-based has now become a new one as well hasn't it that people are really into and but but at the end of it i know you didn't solve the solve the issue of mindfulness for the world you didn't come to any definitive scientific conclusion but what do you think was your conclusion at the end about the benefits of of meditation and mindfulness i think my big conclusion is that we really need to turn our minds in a very serious way to looking at evidence-based solutions for mental health Um, when you look at the funding that's being given say to something like cancer um, versus versus my um mental health research it, they just don't even compare mm. and yet you know we know that illnesses like depression are one billion people problems mm. because if you get depression once in your life there's a high chance you'll get it again and if you get it again there's a higher chance you'll get it again so we, we know we really need to take mental health seriously mindfulness is not a panacea and it's not going to be the form of mental training that works for every single person. But a lot of other mental health treatments have also proven not to be a panacea, have they? While antidepressants are are very effective for some people, they're certainly, they haven't stop people from being being depressed and they also haven't solved it for many others. Exactly. And I think that was my conclusion is that I really do understand now why mindfulness training has made its way into schools, into parliaments, um, into healthcare systems because it makes sense. It can be delivered by qualified professionals in group settings. It's something that we can do for ourselves so it doesn't have to be expensive. And funnily enough, I think you know, we, there is substantial evidence now, enough for us to, to know that this is a thing, that this this is really worthwhile, um, throwing money at to research for whom it works, in what circumstances, and why, what are the mechanisms at, at Is it one of those play? things that it's hard to get 
research. You, you, you tend to think that research is funded by people who have a reason to fund it, right? And, you know, it. I guess, you know, drugs is one one thing that is, is quite highly funded because people have a reason to do it. Is it harder for them to get the money to make, to research things like mindfulness, which probably don't, there's not a lot of profit in it, is there? No, um, but I think that, and I, and I think you've just hit the nail on the head as to why this hasn't taken off as fast as it probably should. Do you think when it comes to maybe closer closer to home, when people are, are suffering from problems like depression and anxiety, which are in incredibly real. Do you think that there can be a bit of a um, a resistance to things, um, tools like, like meditation? I, I know it, some people, you know, sort of think once you sort of say, maybe you try this, this might help, that you're kind of taking away from the fact that they say, you know, I can't help this, right? I've got an illness. And, and yes, we know that depression and, and those anxiety are definite mental illnesses. But is it is is there a resistance from that level that people think you're kind of sort of it's almost like well come on, do a bit of mindfulness you can sna- you can snap out of it and I know that's oh, not what you're saying yeah, at all yeah but um but yeah is it a bit of a changing our perspective on on mental illnesses and the, and the effect and the things that we can do to help ourselves? I think part of the issue is that we have a, a very reductionist kind of system when it comes to our approach to health. So we all, you know, even not even necessarily in direct relation to mental health, but any kind of health concern, we all want to find the one macro ingredient that we need to drop from our diet. Mm. We need to find the one pill that's going to cure our chronic disease. We need to find the one perfect form of exercise training. And in this idea of that there's always one solution to solve one problem, rather than looking at our whole lives... Mm. Um, I think that's where we're going terribly, terribly wrong. So what I'm talking about here is, yes, it's true that depression, illnesses like depression are complex and that they're caused by, you know, systemic issues, um, life circumstance issues, family history issues, past trauma issues. And so I'm not for one second saying that you can meditate away your depression. But if I've learned anything by doing this project... It's that well-being is a skill mm. and that with the right training, it is something that we can actually learn to do. Mm. And I think that's where the hope is. Yeah, I love that. That is so hopeful that we can, <laughs> that we can learn these skills. And look, it's like anything. We, we spend a lot of time in school, don't we, learning maths and English and science, but we don't always learn the life skills we need, which are sometimes about managing our emotions, um, you know, what did they say? They don't te- they they don't teach kids how to like you know how to save money or to how to like balance their credit cards. So there's some very simple life things that it sounds like we could be teaching our kids a bit a bit younger. Have you talked to your kids about mindfulness and meditation? Are they too young, or are there things that you can already <laughs> start to affect? There's little things, definitely. Um, my son had a caffeine induced um, insomnia. Um, experience and he couldn't sleep no matter what he did he just couldn't sleep and he was becoming quite distressed about it and it's that somebody had given him dark chocolate um, before going to bed so he was just really wired and I you know took him through a really simple body scan Um, so I saw how it could be useful as a training tool there for him Um, but I suspect I suspect this is going to be the subject of the next film 
Mm, yes, children. You know, yeah. I used to take my kids sometimes and give them the, the elevator and we would go down, down, which I, I guess was a bit of a hypnosis wow. in a way. And we'd sort of say, we're going down to the next level and then it's getting darker and it's quieter mm. and it's stiller. And they loved it. They still talk about it. They were like, oh, mum, you know, they think wow. they wanted me to do it all the time, which I didn't, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go to bed, go to sleep. But I think it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? It's about sort of, you know, just just calming and quieting and going into a quiet space. Look, I loved your book. I think it's a must must read for anyone who's thinking about, you know, embarking on the course of, of meditation or mindfulness and about sort of debunking some of those really common, you know, as we said, the mindfulness myths. Um, are you still meditating? I assume yes. Definitely, yeah. And how, how often? How often? I mean, every day, but what yeah. sort of, how, how long every day? Yeah, so so the good news is in, in a nod to what we talked about earlier about um, having to use strategies in order to actually stick to something, after the silent retreat, my motivation became much more intrinsic mm. um, rather than sort of the, the stick of the scientists mm. prodding me to do it. Mm. It's now the kind of the carrot of that, you know, my well-being has so significantly improved as a result of this practice mm. that um, I know that I, it's something that I feel better when I do it daily. And I don't want to put people off, but my conclusion um, sort of after meticulously documenting the effects on my day-to-day well-being was that I need to aim for 45 minutes a day, mm. which is I read that. Really I read that when you were, you were doing 20 yeah. minutes and I thought, that's that's good, that's, that's doable. doable. And then you were like, <gasps> oh, but actually, yeah. the and 45 was, was a better a better win in the end. Well, it's that I aim for 45 minutes and I don't always get there, but I also use strategies. So um, my favourite behaviour change strategy that I used was developed by Peter Golwitzer, who is from New York University. It's called If Then Planning. Yeah. Are you familiar with this? I, I know it from your book, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> so it goes, my If Then Planning um, goes like this. If it's 6am, then I will meditate. Um, and also another little tip that I'll put in there is that my alarm clock is my favourite meditation teacher's voice. Oh. So he reminds me instantly. Did he say, wake up, Shannon? No. Wake up. <laughs> no, he says, uh, it's a talk that I recorded of him. Oh, and he okay. says, like, now the thing about mindfulness meditation is, <laughs> no, oh, I can't get up. So if it's 6am, then I will meditate. If one of my kids wakes up early and I don't get to meditate for the 45 minutes, then I will meditate on my lunch break. If it's a crazy day and I don't get a lunch break, then I will meditate. And it goes on and on and on. And if it's the weekend and my schedule's out, then I will meditate while my kids listen to an audiobook or whatever. And the great thing about that strategy is that it enables me to plan for all the curveballs that are going to come. And as a result of doing that, I haven't skipped it once since I started the project. Wow. <laughs> well, congratulations. You can't see Shannon, but she looks she looks happy. She's <laughs> she's definitely got bright, sparkly eyes. So, uh, look, I didn't know you before you embarked your year of mindfulness. But, um, yeah, it was a really wonderful book and I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for coming in and, and chatting. I think it'll be really valuable to a lot of listeners. And I hope they go and have a look at the doco as well as buy the book. Thank you. This has been an absolute delight. Oh, so thanks, Shannon. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with more insights and stories from Australia's happiest people. Until then, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you drop us a rating and a review.